Good morning, everyone. I want to start by uh, kind of promoting a little resource here. I, I love these things. This is uh, the Gospel According to Luke. It is the ESV Illuminated Scripture Journal. There's also just a standard scripture journal, I think. But uh, I think they're only like five bucks at, on Amazon. You can also get them at christianbookdistributors.com. Uh, but uh, these are great. And actually, I, I was noticing this one. Right here in the passage today, there's this little piece on the... Here, a little graphic that says his kingdom has no end out of verse 33. So I thought that was really cool. And so you can see it's got the scripture on one side and it's got a side for notes. You use it for your uh, personal study. So how cool would it be to just be reading through this throughout the week and then we're, we're coming together and studying it as a church body together uh, and you can just take your notes in that. So I wanted to encourage, uh, if, if, if you're the type of person that might journal or might take notes, uh, this is a really cool resource. Uh, this one's kind of cool because it's kind of purple, and purple uh, is a color for the first few weeks of Advent, so uh, that's uh, kind of cool. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give it back to Denise because this is hers, but <laughs> I thought that was cool, and it's also imagery on the front. You, it tells you about it on the back, but yeah, really cool stuff. Um, I like imagery. Sometimes we get away from imagery. Um, because of certain traditions or whatever, but sometimes that imagery can be so powerful. This week we are in Luke 1, and uh, we're starting in verse 26. We're going to go through verse 38, um, and of course we've been going through that, and you'll notice that there might be a theme here. Um, we'll see if you get it. If, I, if you get it, I, I've succeeded. If not, I've just wasted a lot of time. But... Oh, <laughs> No, I, you'll get it. Um, let's, uh, let's begin reading in Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favor one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be, be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom of, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Our holy God, we are gathered and we call out to you from our broken and needy and unworthy place. Our world is a mess. Our sins are great. And our society reflects a culture of hatred 
death and genocide, even of the most vulnerable and innocent of persons, because we have not loved you, but instead have held disdain in our hearts for your holy image presented to us in every human face that we look into. And yet, you saw fit to send your son into our messy world as one of us to dwell with us and to suffer and die in our place. And somehow he has given us the promise of his imminent return. How is it, O oh God, that we betray you, our everlasting, holy God, and you look upon us with such great love that you would send your son as a lowly servant to serve us whom he created? knowing that we humbly now submit our hearts, minds, and our attention to you, our good God, as we open your holy scriptures this morning, to learn from you and to know you with more depth through what you have given us to know you by. We give you this time. We give it over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Have you seen the 80s movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, James Earl Jones? I won't recommend it and won't admit to having seen it. But don't, don't show it to your kids, by the way. Because Eddie Murphy can be, you know Eddie Murphy, he can be a little foul sometimes, but he gets bonus points because he's really funny. And funny is good. Now, the plot of the movie begins with this, this royal family in a, in a fictitious African country called Zamunda, where James Earl Jones is king and Eddie Murphy is Akeem, the prince and heir to his throne. Akeem is to be married but rejects the bride that has been arranged for him and instead he leaves his kingdom with his servant Semi played by Arsenio Hall. You can imagine this Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. And they went to live as uh, a poor unsuccessful and insignificant person uh, in New York in order to find a queen who will love him for who he is not just what he has. And of course Arsenio's character has no interest in poverty. That's part of the irony of the, and, the, and the comedy of the movie. Akeem likes the irony of looking for a queen, and of all places, queens. And after a series of hysterical events, he finds one who he likes, but he has to work for her attention because she's dating and gets engaged to a successful hair model with a sports car. And we all know that's what the women want, is a hair model with a sports car. No, they want a guy with a truck. That's what they want. Eventually, she falls in love with Akeem. She's shocked and about leaves him when she finds out that he's a prince. Eventually, eventually they get married and, they, and she becomes an heiress to power and prestige that isn't even possible in America. Now that movie was more than 30 years old and there's finally a sequel, which I'm not going to watch because I'm a good Christian boy. Um, Jesus is Lord of all. Yet he stepped out of his eternal place of honor into our context on earth to dwell with us as one of us. And he, and he did this so that he could lay his own life down for us, his bride, the church, and we can receive his inheritance. Last week, we looked at Luke's prologue in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, and we learned that what we're reading here is a well-researched and documented history which, which made use of many direct eyewitnesses to the accounts recorded. 
The week prior to that, we had Brad Dacus visiting, and he brought us the account of Zechariah and Elizabeth being visited by the angel Gabriel and being told that they would have a son who would be John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is different than John the Apostle or John the Disciple that followed Jesus around um, and wrote John and, uh, you know, the Gospel of John and Revelation. And, and, and we may wonder, of course, who the eyewitnesses to the account of Zechariah and Elizabeth are. So I think that it's probably Mary is one of the big resources there, just like what follows today almost certainly relies largely on Mary's testimony to Luke. L Luke 1, 26 and 27, it says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, Nazareth is in Galilee, which is in northern Israel. You can see that in the red up here. And, and then if you were to go down to see, see where Jerusalem is, where the little box is, Bethlehem is a little south of that. So you can see it was quite a distance they would have had to travel. And from a cultural and religious standpoint, Galilee wasn't as cool as Judea, which is in the south, because Judea had Jerusalem there. And, and so culturally, it was kind of like, the cultural difference between California and, let's say, Oklahoma. And Nazareth was, Nazareth was the bad neighborhood, right? Like Hemet, if Hemet was in Oklahoma. Kind of like the place where you find drugs and gangs and widespread homelessness and Walmart. I, I imagine it looked a bit like Tatooine. You guys seen Star Wars, right? I'll bet George Lucas had Nazareth in mind when he decided where Luke Skywalker would come from. In fact, I just read an article that draws a lot of parallels between Luke Skywalker and Jesus of Nazareth, and that included uh, the birthplaces of the two. And I, I read that because I use my time wisely. Uh, on top of the geographical context, there's a very important literary and historical context here. This announcement comes in a time when Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John. And his name means God is gracious. We're going to see a lot of grace here. We're going to see that word quite a bit. Elizabeth is not only infertile, but she's probably postmenopausal, uh, or so it seems. Uh, so Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children, and it was biologically virtually impossible for them to conceive. And yet they did. Now we come to Mary. She's a virgin, which makes it even more impossible for her to become pregnant. It's an even greater miracle for her to conceive. It's literally impossible in every way. R.C. Sprawl says it like this. He says, In the pages of the Old Testament were historical precedents of women who were barren and past the age of childbearing, whose wombs God had quickened, granting them sons. But never in the history of the world had any woman had a child while she remained a virgin. This would be the first and last time in history that such an event would take place. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal was a legally binding form of engagement that was usually arranged between the two fathers. And any sexual contact with someone else would be considered actual adultery and would carry that penalty. 
And so Mary, although she could have been as old as 15, she was more, more likely to be 12 or 13 years old, which would have been the normal age for betrothal. Pretty young, right? Um, my daughters are not getting engaged till they're like in the 30s, I think. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe not. But not at 13, I promise you. Um, Important to note is that Joseph was the descendant of David, and Jesus would be called the son of David. So Gabriel appears to Mary. Verse 28. He came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Keep in mind, this is a young female from Nazareth. She was as unprivileged as you could find here. And, and becoming pregnant before she was married, particularly outside of relationships with her fiancé, would have further marginalized her. Yet the angel calls her favored, or, or blessed, or, as Jerome said, full of grace. Mary's the recipient of a message of the anticipation of something good. And God's elect us, we are also favored in that we anticipate something good. There's still anticipation, right? In fact, the first week of Advent is when we traditionally anticipate the second coming of Christ. This is the first week of Advent. Before we get there, I want, to note, I want to note something that Sprawl noticed. He says, the translation here has the angel saying, greetings, O favored one. In the Latin Vulgate, translated by the church father Jerome, the words are gratia plena, which literally means full of grace. So if you have a Roman Catholic background, some of that may sound familiar because it's where the rosary comes from. Um, if you know what the rosary is. We don't pray to Mary for a number of reasons. I think important reasons, including the fact that we can go directly to God. And we have no biz biblical precedence for praying to anyone but Yahweh. But, so therefore, I think it would be at best wildly inappropriate to attempt praying to Mary. Riken puts it, Philip Graham Riken, he puts it this way. The angel's greeting has often been misunderstood. Gabriel was not worshiping Mary, nor did he say that she was full of grace. These ideas come from a prayer commonly used by Roman Catholics. You may have heard this prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. That is, this is not, he says, a biblical prayer although it has some biblical language in it. The problem is that it treats Mary as the source of grace, not, uh, or, or rather than the object of grace. Riken suggests that Jerome's translation, full of grace, is a mistranslation. He continues, what the Bible says is that Mary was the recipient of God's grace, not a repository of grace. Nevertheless, Gabriel is acknowledging, acknowledging the enormous gravity of the grace that Mary's receiving here. We must notice that there's no indication of any special worthiness on Mary's part. Not only is she not the source of grace, she also did not merit any special blessing. The blessing was given to her by grace. God chose her by his own sovereign decree and nothing more. I mean, unless you want to read something into the Bible, which I strongly advise against. Verse 29. I hope that was helpful because, um, you know, sometimes we can, 
uh, not understand some of the distinctions that we have. Verse 29 through 33, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his kingdom, in his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So notice here that the angel Gabriel jumps ahead quite a bit. He, he kind of skips over the part about Jesus being born in a barn. And, he, and, he, and, and, and then being raised a nomad, and then a poor kid from Nazareth, and becoming a blue-collar worker, and then a homeless rabbi for a time, and then being crucified on the cross. But he goes straight to the second coming, where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth forever. Now to this point, Mary's troubled. I think, how many of us sometimes are a little bit troubled by our own eschatology? That means end times, think, end times views. How many of us get a bit troubled by that? I, I know it's sometimes for me, because it's hard to understand sometimes. And, and it, so it tends to be a little scary. Like we know we have hope. We know Jesus is coming back. But just the uncertainty seems kind of, can you imagine what this young virgin is thinking when she hears she's going to have a son? Can you imagine how scary that would be? How, how does Gabriel begin his prophecy? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We also see here that Gabriel names the son. She doesn't have to worry about that. Like, is it going to be Fred or, or, or Gilbert? What are we going to name him? How about Gerald? No, Jesus. That's what Gabriel gave her. Just like he named John. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. This is a reference to Yahweh, to the everlasting God himself. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The whole section is a message of anticipation. Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. Now, the first week of Advent points to anticipation of the second coming, where Jesus comes as a conquering king. But he would first come as a suffering servant, wouldn't he? Isaiah 53. This is the famous suffering servant chapter in Isaiah. Let's start in verse 3, Isaiah 53. This is what it says of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Amen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears and silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In this morning's passage, Luke identifies Jesus as the Son of God, as the Davidic Messiah, as the eternal King, and as the Holy One. And we see that his kingdom has no end. We're still waiting for him to return. But we must look upon the first coming, the, the incarnation we call it. John 1, verse 14 this is, this is John's nativity. It's just summed up in one verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We must be humbled before him in his poverty before we can bow before him in his royalty. In fact, when Mary asks how, we see that this poverty, throughout the next few weeks, we'll see this. His poverty is the means by which it is all brought about. But the first core question, Mary says to the angel in, in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Christians have confessed the virgin birth from the very beginning. It's in every important statement, every important creed or confession in the early church. It has always been among the most important and central doctrines of our faith. It's everywhere. You cannot deny that Christians have always believed in the virgin birth. Riken said, since she was a godly woman, Mary was saving herself for marriage. She was preserving her sexual purity as a prize the way every woman should. This isn't to credit Mary with any merit on her own part. Jesus had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. If he were naturally conceived through Joseph, he would have been no more than a mere man. And Fallen humans cannot be saved by a mere human who has the same fallen nature. Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time. We call this the hypostatic union. Maybe you've heard of it. There was actually a Christian band called the hypostatic union one time. I have no idea where they, weren't, where they went. They probably weren't that good. I don't remember their songs. But, but uh, anyhow, hypostatic union. What that means is the union of the divine and human natures in the one person or hypostasis of Jesus Christ. Hypostatic union. That's a good one to remember. Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. Verses 35 through 38. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary here accepts the angel's prophecy and she submits. She says she's a servant of the Lord. Can we, can we serve the suffering servant? 
Mary submitted to the will of God without regard to the cost that would come to her. Mary herself was already what we would call marginalized in our present vernacular. She was female, which means she was kind of second class in that culture. She was poor. She, she was uneducated. She was young. She was from Nazareth. And now she's an unwed pregnant teenager. And yet she is called most blessed among women. One translator translated the term favored one as privileged one. In fact, we, that's another important word in our vernacular today, right? Privileged one. This unprivileged Jewish girl is now most privileged in God's eyes. Mary would carry in her womb the king of kings. But to get to the root of Christ's second coming, we need to understand the first coming. Mary would be stuck giving birth outside of an inn where animals would be boarded. Not in a hospital. And actually, with my experience at the Temecula Valley Hospital, when I had COVID, a barn seems like an upgrade. But this was indicative of Christ's life and ministry the first time around. It's important because we're, we're already here talking about glory in this very messy place. But there's nothing majestic about the incarnation. In fact, many take Isaiah 53, 2 to mean that he wasn't really an attractive person. When he was born, there was nowhere to put him, so they laid him in a, in a manger. Uh, that's literally a feeding trough. I don't think any of us were born that poor. Then as a baby or a small child, he was a fugitive. Mary and Joseph fled with him to Egypt. Herod killed a lot of babies trying to, trying to find him. He was raised as a construction worker in a blue-collar family. And then he went into public ministry where he, for a while he, he was homeless. He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't even have a car. Like Luke 19 tells us he rode in to Jerusalem in a borrowed colt. So that's, a, have you ever seen a Dodge Colt? Right? Like, and he didn't even own it. If the best you can do is borrow that, a, a Dodge Colt, you have not achieved what any of us might consider success. The fact that he was Lord of the universe never changed. He, he was able to humble himself. Nobody was actually above him. And yet he washed the feet of his disciples who were not exactly the most respected people in his community. I would suggest that serving a king or a president or someone rich and famous might not be that difficult for most of us. But the example Jesus shows is that his mission is to humble oneself below those who everyone else would turn away from. Now, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. It's going to look differently than the first time. Matthew 24, 36 through 44 says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that 
when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus had come into Jerusalem because after entering the world by humble and even seemingly shameful means, being a fugitive, mocked, challenged, and berated by religious people, he's now coming to leave the earth and resume his rightful throne. So he begins giving metaphors or parables largely about the end times and about his return. And he spends a lot of time on this, so we might consider that he, he may have had an important message for us about what we are to do in the meantime. Chapter 22 uh, of Matthew, he gives a, a parable about the bride and bridegroom that paints a stark picture about the consequences of not being ready. But the power is in the root of the metaphor. The bridegroom, Jesus, is coming for his bride, the church, you and I, John Piper suggested that the cross was like a dowry by which he paid for his betrothed. Something else to consider. Um, historically, husbands don't just marry everybody. They choose who they will truly love to give that lifelong intimacy to. Now, our traditions uh, have, you know, more men and women kind of going back and forth on proposals and stuff like that. But, uh, but you get the point. And by the way, you, it's okay if you want to date my daughters, you can be more traditional and ask me first. Because um, just remember that their daddy has not yet achieved, achieved the level of grace and forgiveness that Jesus displayed. So you ever seen that t-shirt that says, I have beautiful daughters. I also have a gun, a shovel, and an alibi. I don't, I, don't wear, I don't wear that shirt too often. No, actually, I, I don't have it yet. The, the bridegroom is coming at an hour that we do not know. We may ask how to be ready. How do we honor the king before he comes? You know, within this framework of anticipation, Jesus then gives us the most fundamental image of the time that we're living in from a point in history that he saw a close comparison to. He goes to the days of Noah, the what's called pre-diluvian or pre-flood, just means pre-flood, period, right before the flood. In that time, people were going about their business, unaware that everything was about to change and that wide, universal, divine judgment would be the catalyst for this change. Harry Ironside suggested that the pre-Diluvian population lived carelessly and self-indulgently, something we wouldn't know anything about, right? You know, Larry Norman, you might remember him. He made a little bit of a funny mistake when he wrote the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Um, 
And then Tim LaHaye jumps in and he writes this entire series of books called the Left Behind series in which people experience the tribulation after having been left behind when the rapture occurred. Then the band DC Talk uh, joined the bandwagon with a popular cover of Larry Norman's song and the evangelical church went into kind of this pop theology mode where we just, we were warning people routinely that if you, you don't want to get left behind, you don't want to get left behind when the rapture happens. And we'd use this very passage that we're looking at today. But there's only one problem with using this passage for that. In the flood, the ones being judged were the ones swept away. They were swept away in judgment and Noah and his family were left behind to repopulate the earth. So now, because there are some wording changes, uh, it's possible that later in the same chapter, the same section, he did a reversal and was pointing to the rapture uh, when he says something similar. Um, and, but, but we really don't know about that. Um, and, and we still, you know, that's not to diminish um, the, the doctrine of the, of the rapture. It's just that this isn't the best passage to use for it. Um, this passage is more about unexpectedness. And so if it is speaking of the rapture, it's speaking about the unexpectedness of it. Um, it's speaking about unexpectedness rather than judgment. So it, it's okay not to know everything. That's okay. Um, I think many of us as, as Christians, we've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out how and when everything is going to happen instead of being obedient and doing the work of Christ. He spent a lot more time helping people in need than trying to solve the Bible like it was a riddle. Warren Wiersbe wrote that the purpose of this passage is not to entertain the curious, but to encourage the consecrated. He's coming back. He's coming back. And to get to the root of the second coming and what it means to us, we need to look at the first coming. In the coming week, we're going to see how Jesus was born outdoors to an unwed mother, a poor, marginalized, Galilean baby. How many of us see that telltale shopping cart and then we just kind of look elsewhere and pretend like we don't see it? I, my dad, after my parents were divorced, my dad bought a house just you know right around the corner and that house came with a cat. My dad's not an animal person, but he, this house came with a cat, so he fed it, and that was his pet. Never allowed it in the, in the house, which is the right thing with cats. Don't let them, you know. Um, but but he, he would feed it, you know. This isn't Fullerton. It didn't snow in Fullerton. But, the, 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 you know, he would feed the cat the same time every single day um, when he would get home from work. And one day, a possum figured this out figured out that there would be a meal there at the same time every day. And so what ended up happening is my dad would go to feed the cat and the possum would come and the cat would go hide out over here and sit on the block wall while the possum ate the cat's dinner, which didn't make my dad happy. Um, and uh, the cat would sit up there on the, on the block wall and pretend like it couldn't see the possum. It would just sit up there and look this way that while the possum's over here eating his dinner and the cat would just sit there and then it would, eventually it would just kind of slowly move its head this way and you'd see its eyes go way over here to try to, and it would look over and then as soon as it could catch a glimpse of the possum, it would turn back this way. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. And we do that, don't we? 
we do that. I should pray for this person. I hope somebody helps them. Gosh, I wonder what that man over there did to get himself in that situation. Oh, he, that person looks like he might be on drugs. And behind the shopping cart is an image bearer of the everlasting holy God. You will never rightly worship Jesus as conquering king when he returns until you can learn to honor Jesus as the suffering servant. few weeks after 9-11, I found myself on an airplane with a group of people from our church that were working with a prominent ministry, and we end up in this orientation where they told us, don't give money to the panhandlers. Don't give money to the panhandlers because there's more help for people in need in New York than anywhere else in the world. They have the best resources for people in need. And a lot of people who panhandle, well, they, they have nice apartments. And that's how they earn a living. Don't give money to the panhandlers. If they, don't, if they really need help and they don't get it, there's a reason. Drug addiction, warrants, things like that. And so I'm in the subway train a few days later with a couple other guys, and this song starts playing in my head that uh, I had heard quite often. It was a song called Under Bridges by a band by the name of Brave Saint Saturn. And the song just started playing in my head. Yesterday while walking beneath an overpass, I saw a figure of Jesus standing barefoot on broken glass. His beard was graying, smell of urine filled the air, asking if I had some change, anything that I could spare. Emaciated, his shaking fist balled up, influenza and pneumonia, begging God to take his cup. So different from his pictures, breathing air through yellowed tubes, Jesus Christ, dying of AIDS, can look like right through you. And all have hated, crucified, and walked away, savior of the prostitutes, drunkards, rapists, and the gays. That song began to materialize as the smell of stale urine and BO began to fill the car, and then the door on the other end of the car opens up, and I'm telling you, you could taste the smell. This tall, emaciated, man in an old army jacket appeared and the whites of his eyes and the few teeth he had stood out brightly against the backdrop of his deep black skin and it was as if the voice of Jesus spoke to me that's me coming towards you Jeff what are you going to do about it I began to do what everyone else was doing what they do in the subways is they put the ads kind of up high so that way you can look up at the ads and pretend to be interested while the homeless people walk by so you don't have to look at them and so I am standing up there like everybody else looking up thinking yeah I could benefit from that Jordash look and then I heard it again that's me coming towards you what are you going to do about it Jeff so I argued with God, which is never the wise choice. Oh God, he's just going to buy drugs. I, there's, there's help out there for him. And then I heard this. What's it to you 
what this man does with what you give me. So I began to involuntarily recite this passage that I'd never taken the time to remember. It just came and I just kept hearing it in my mind. It's, it's a passage, in fact, right after Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the same context uh, of the words of Jesus speaking of his second coming that we just saw. Matthew 25, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will Answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Homeless, can you spare some change? This tall man may as well have been crying out, unclean, unclean. I heard it again. That's me coming towards you. What are you going to do, Jeff? So I scrambled for some spare change in my pocket and I dropped it in this man's broken styrofoam cup. And he stopped. And he stared at me. And he said, thank you, sir. And he walked through the next door and onto the next car. And then this horrifying and haunting truth overwhelmed me. I had some $200 in my wallet that I didn't need. And I just dropped three quarters in Jesus' cup. Augustine said this, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. We don't wait for Christ's return by idly looking up. We wait for Jesus by being like Jesus. We don't... It's only when we can honor the least of these that we can rightly worship the King of Kings when He comes. Compassion isn't enough. Having pity is tantamount to being patronizing. Don't patronize the image of the immortal God. Oh, he should be in a mental hospital. Look at him. Oh, she's clearly on something. I'll pray for her. Oh, look at those children. CPS should really get involved. Don't pity them. Don't start with trying to figure out how to fix them. Don't just pray for them and say, be warmed and filled. Honor them. Honor them because they are the image of the coming Lord. And you cannot rightly worship Him until you can honor them. Some of us are here in this this place we set aside, a sacred place we set aside to worship the Holy Lord of all. Some of us here have the means of helping. 
Others here in the sacred place have needs that none of us know about. And the only way to connect those two things is through relationships. With What if, what if those of us that have the means were, were to approach someone we don't know after the service? Hey, would you like to join us at La Casita, our treat? In our communities, you, you know, we have... So, my family... And I, we, we, we once, we lived for about seven years in one of the most impoverished regions of New York. There was a family, I remember, that, that actually tore all the copper out of their house. Plumbing, electrical, all the copper so that they could pay their taxes and not lose their home. And they spent the entire winter in sub-zero temperatures huddled by the fireplace. You know, here in Idlewild, we're generally blessed, but there are still a lot of people here who, who don't know how they're going to get to the end of the month, and they go through this month after month after month. Walk through our parking lot after church, or walk through the parking lot over by Fairway. Take a look at license plates. How many of those cars are you going to find driven by someone who can't afford current tax, or can't afford the repairs to get that vehicle smogged so they can get their tax? dropping spare change you have no use for in the Salvation Army bucket, that's useful. But are we willing to run to the mess and to make a real difference through loving people by getting to know them? Maybe they're weird. Let them be weird. Jesus is coming back. Pretty sure a lot of people thought Jesus was weird too. You know, we don't know the details and the details are fuzzy at best, but he's coming back. And he has a flamethrower this time. And he's driving a white Mustang and I'm guessing that's a Shelby because that's what I would drive if I owned the cattle on a thousand hills. And he owns this one. No more borrowed Dodge Colt. I mean, there's imagery. That's how I imagine it. You can imagine it how you want. He comes on a great white horse and he's got a flamethrower and there will be no more pain and no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow and no more homelessness and no more death and war. There will be no more orphans and widows, no more border crisis, no more poverty and hunger. There will be no more hate because our Lord is coming back to restore it all. But we cannot truly love conquering King Jesus until we can learn to truly love suffering servant Jesus. There is no middle ground. We're either a recipient of grace made possible because Jesus took the heat for us and then we respond accordingly or according to Jesus in Matthew 25, we're worthless. Will we commit to running towards the mess? Will we commit to honor the most dishonorable among us? If you're a child of the king, a fellow heir with Christ Jesus, there's plenty to go around. Can we, for a moment, step off of our place of honor just for a while like Jesus did and love the least of these? Will we honor the least of these as our faithful worship to the king of kings? Let's pray. Holy God, we confess that we have not loved you with all of our heart 
mind, and strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have judged unrighteously and refused to honor those we have judged by, by our pride and self-righteousness. God, forgive us. Lord, the most haunting thought is how we would judge our Lord Jesus and his mother if we were to come across them unaware. Holy God, help us to rightly worship you, our mighty King, by honoring the least of these. Teach us to be generous with that which we hold so tightly to. Place opportunities to honor those who hold the least honorable status in our society and cause us to honor you by honoring them. And until your son returns, let us be vessels for your redemptive work in the world around us. Lord, we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices of praise as we enter our week and our mission field that we may hear one day those blessed words, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We long to hear those words and beg that you make us worthy of them by your mighty grace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.